Welcome, one and all, to Lower Decks, Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Healing frequencies are open. I love being alive. Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 401, Tuvix, and 402, I Have No Bones, Yet I Must Flee, comes to you now via mission-worn uniform. And news from the fleet before this episode leaves orbit. Just yesterday, Pete, we were discussing the latest episode of Ahsoka on our Ahsoka podcast. Uh, That was episode four. And uh, quite an enjoyable conversation there. Yes, it was. And you also had the Disney Plus Master and Apprentice Ahsoka 7-Minute Special, which upstaged... Star Trek Day, which... By the way, it's not the first time that Disney has done, yes, Disney has done special stuff on Star Trek Day, you know, the property it does not own. Not that this was a major shot across the bow, but Pete, let's, I guess let's start in the mountaintop and work our way down. How was the Master and Apprentice seven-minute special? It did what it needed to do in light of who showed up at the very end of Ahsoka part four this week and will very much be at the center of proceedings for the fifth episode this coming Tuesday. But uh, yeah, it did it a lot better than what Star Trek Day did. So I have to admit, first and foremost, first of all, I think every Star Trek Day, you know, in the last bunch of years, whether it was COVID interrupted, whatever it might be, on the one hand, there's been like a, a good old college try against an upward battle, you know, particularly in 2020 and all of that. Um, Also, I think it's never, it's always been heartfelt, but never been kind of a can't miss thing. I was less into it this year. uh, I think not only because no actors, no writers due to those dual strikes, but also because we're celebrating this big thing that actors and writers and producers don't actually own. It's a big, it's a big corporate thing on a made up corporate day. And I was, less inclined to dive on in but pete you dove on in for us i did the about 20 some odd minute uh star trek day thing that side note matt when i watched the uh promotion i got before it you know like when you click on star trek picard and it says you know uh, star trek strange new worlds watch it now and you're like oh there's that other thing i could watch um, I was treated to an ad for Star Trek Day as I watched Star Trek Day. Side note, because, uh, you know, Pete, you and I share the uh, the commercial free plan, as I suspect many people out there have the commercial free plan. When they do front load your watching with a commercial, uh, if you just press back, like, you know, you go back to the menu, that then gobbles up that 30 second one. If they've offered you a 60 second one, It'll start, a, you know, you've you got 60 seconds, you go out, you've got 30 seconds, you go out, the episode starts. So, um, yeah. Da- usually down... skip button shows up, usually. Kind of like sometimes, Matt, uh, you can get closed captions. And sometimes, like, when I watched and took notes for this podcast, I couldn't get captions for either Lower Deck episode on the uh on the uh, laptop version, 
whatever that. But yeah, so Star Trek Day, Matt, or as this year I will refer to it, celebrating the property the network owns outright day. Um, really consisted of three segments. It was a little like uh, discovery segment. There was, they led off with the, uh, hey, Tawny Newsom and Eugene Cordero watch uh, Strange Moments in Star Trek. And then they had a thing with Jackie Cox asking people who didn't know anything about Star Trek to prove they actually knew things about Star Trek, which I have to say might have had the the most value there. Um, but Jerry O'Connell, okay, Jack Ransom, uh, hosted this, and uh, this was a complete and utter sham repurposed uh, trap for these people. In fact, at one point, as it leads into a break, which we pay to not have for commercials, um, Jerry O'Connell called it Star Trek is for everyone. So I'm completely confident they got trapped, tricked into recording this beforehand, not knowing it would be deployed for Star Trek Day. So I don't know whether that's a glasses half full or glasses half empty thing from the corporate perspective. You know, as we've talked about in previous uh, discussions, if in a pre-strike time somebody came to these actors and said, here is money to record a thing, you know, I'm not here to say don't go make extra money. Or similarly, if you are contractually obligated to do two sit-down interviews to support your season at a, you know, the nature of which shall be determined by the network and the network says we're going to do strange moments in track you know that kind of thing that is what that is if that's the contract you signed that's the way it is so the the fact that paramount plus paramount etc did not plan better for a great star trek day package i guess that means they were optimistic about a settlement so i guess that's the glass is half full glass is half empty shouldn't there have been somebody in may and june uh saying hey strike clouds really are coming together here we need to put together a, a decent star trek day package and it sounds like they did not yeah so if you've watched it you've watched it if you haven't watched it you may just want to check it out for what it is <laughs> uh in uh actual star trek news matt i don't know pete star trek news it came up on my memories on facebook 12 years ago yesterday i had finally finished watching every single star trek episode uh at that time uh in what i referred to as my trek mitzvah so 12 years ago yesterday i had watched it all i was unaware it was the day after star trek day because 12 years ago it wasn't a thing <laughs> uh well pete in part of the celebration question mark of Star Trek Day, they've also debuted, but I'm sure they're going to pat themselves on the back and say, another Star Trek series added to the canon. Just as with short treks, they were like, it's its own TV show, filmed with parts and leftovers of other TV shows. So very short treks uh, was created to celebrate 50 years of Star Trek animation. I must admit, Pete, because I'm a little bit down on the celebration of... Uh, the network 
owning a property outright and all of that. I have yet to see it. I will. Um, but what can you tell us? What can what can I look forward to when I watch the very short Trek entitled Skin a Cat? Yes, the first one uh, is out as of uh, Friday, Star Trek Day. Uh, the nicest thing is that uh, Ethan Peck is in it. Um, again, a little disingenuous during that special where it does not uh, appear. You you click on it separately, uh, which it, it might have found a, a way in there, might have been smart. Um, Jerry O'Connell referred to them as promotional spots. Huh. So if nothing else, further proof of editing together scraps to make a make a Star Trek pair of pants, for lack of a better metaphor? <laughs> I guess. Well, Pete, let's head now into our ready rundown for these two episodes. Program complete. Enter when ready. As the season opens, the Cerritos arrives at the Portlo system, ready for a classified mission and heading towards that station a ways away. In the lower decks, Mariner and Boimler are wondering what the mystery is, and Tendi and Talin stop by. Boimler's headed to holodeck cleanup, and he had best shower afterwards. He will smell repulsive later. In the holodeck, Ransom floats that there's another pip in Boimler's future, the near future. Just don't let any historical screw-ups happen today. As the Cerritos approaches the mystery station, they hope it isn't a Romulan thing, the station's master is Beljo Turkle. He's a curator and historian ready to show the most beautiful work of art in Starfleet's history. It's the USS Voyager, complete with a snippet of the best Star Trek theme song there is. We get the credits now, including Extra Space Beauty and the probe encounter during the Borg fight. We come out of it with the captain's log showing surprise. The Voyager will be taken home with historical setups inside it mannequins everywhere even some mission-worn uniforms rutherford is playing with the bioneural circuitry and he'd better watch out for that neelix cheese talin finds the ship to be outdated and smelling of borg and she and tendy are to take storage boxes to the cerritos but not before a single flower petal flies out of the shuttle bay into the air system and into the transporter room just as billups and taana prepare to beam back they do with the petal and on the Cerritos end, they're merged, and we may have a problem. Freeman notes that Billups and Ta'ana have merged into Tillops. This happened on Voyager 2. The captain will simply read Janeway's logs and do that thing with no controversy. Of course, Mariner knows Tuvix got murdered, and she's excited for Voy, even though Boims seems to be playing it safe. Mariner adjusts the panel but releases a Taktakian macrovirus. Boimler catches it, but not before it splits and starts to slime the bridge. One gets past Boimler. Shaka when the walls fell, Ensign. But Mariner is confident that collecting these chunky things will be easy. Back on the Cerritos, Tillips feels fine and is boosting the tricorder. The two-vixing nature of things is recapped. Everything uh, and everyone is being nice to Tillips, except for Talin, who notes the anomaly must be corrected. Again, they're confident that there's a Janeway solution. On Voy, the virus is touching the exhibits and starts the hollow programs for Chaotica, the Clown, and Michael Sullivan. It's a straight-up Voy deep-cut adventure. As for why they're off the holodeck, there are hollow emitters just everywhere, you know, for conservation. 
One virus slams into the Borg display, and all of this trouble is landing at Boimler's feet. Back in the ready room, Freeman says Tuvix was straight up murdered. Freeman doesn't want to replicate that, and Shax notes they do have resources now that Voyager did not. Meanwhile, Tillip sees what Janeway's solution was and is ready to protect himself. He fiddles with tech and calls Dr. Miglimo. On Voyager, the curator is freed from the Borg alcove, and the virus now has a Borg nano spot on it, making it worse. And the clowns and Michael Sullivan are everywhere, taking the crew minus Voyager. On the Cerritos, Tilps reluctantly has Janeway and Shax come in and closer and closer. Miglimo and the captain are beamed up with a uh, flower petal. Now we have Captain Free Miglimin. In the bar, Talin is just there to hydrate. She's impartial and sees that double clones and hybrids are gaining more and more to get more double clones and hybrids. On Voyager, our heroes are getting slimed in place, though Boimler is there to get Mariner undone. She doesn't need him, though. He should be having fun, and he's ruined it. He says he does not want the promotion, as it will impact their friendship. She tells him no. She told Ransom it was time to promote Boimler. Boimler can save the ship without her. On the Cerritos, Chandas has arrived, and soon the entire crew will be a Tuvix army. However, Talin starts to fiddle with the transporters, beaming all of the hybrids into the brig, into one big Tuvix meatball, although she's not able to isolate genetic signatures. On Voy, the ship drops out of warp as the clown and the Janeway lizard start to turn them toward the Borg. Boimler frees Rutherford, and the engineer's task is to break Voyager. On the Cerritos, Talin can't separate the meatball, but Tendi uses the Tillips upgraded tricorder that can track personality. Following genetic code and personality means that they can pull them apart out of this non-sentient blob of meat. On Voyager, Rutherford has a classic Voyager solution and a caulk gun in hand. Chaotica catches Boimler. The latter which theatrically says that Boimler is, in fact, the son of Captain Proton. Rutherford has his fix in place, and Chaotica starts to glitch. Indeed, the bioneural subsystems are shutting down, the hollows disappearing. Voyager is broken via Neelix cheese. Time to get fixes in place, and the curator notes that this adventure will need a new exhibit. On Earth, the Voyager has landed at Starfleet Academy, the best theme ever plays, and Freeman's log notes that the awkwardness shall be put behind with promotions. The new lieutenants junior grade are Boimler, Yippee, Provisional Ensign Talin, who of course is not actually a lieutenant junior grade, but whatever, and Tendi. Tendi notes that she and Talin can now be best science friends. Mariner is ready to celebrate, but she's getting a pip too. Later, she goes to see Ransom trying to give the pip back, but she really has earned it. She helped Boimler be the best he can be. Ransom notes that small-minded commanders have promoted and demoted her. He's smarter than the rest, and she needs someone to believe in her, and he's believing in her. In the bar, the lower deckers sit and sip beers, all as lieutenants, junior grade, minus Rutherford. He'll just have to do something, and since he broke Voyager this time, Boimler knows that they're all still lower decks and maybe their life will get easier. Things are going to be great. No more mysterious threats. We cut to Klingon space where the Klingon lower deckers are sharpening a spear, trying to sleep. They get close to fighting as they have tedious tasks under Captain Ma'a. But then there's a red alert on the bridge. The Klingon ship has come across a mysterious threat, an acorn shaped unknown vessel. The ship has one life sign and appears incapacitated. 
However, then it charges weapons and the Klingon systems are losing power. It fires on them, destroying all. Question mark. We then move to episode 402. I have no bones, yet I must flee. In Romulan space, we see a Romulan ship using an original design. That vertical look, that's right. That's a TNG original proposed design there. Inside the ship, the Romulan lower deckers are cleaning up a torture room and working on betraying sub-commander Vrek. Who will betray him first? Then there's an alert on the bridge. The unknown ship is in the way. Time to blast it. But then systems are being drained. The unknown ship fires, taking the Romulans out in one fell swoop. We get the credits, and then on the Cerritos, Shaq screams. He and Ransom stretch in the iconic Crusher Troy spandex moment. Mariner overhears that Ransom has her right where he wants her, and she won't be his problem for that much longer. Mariner storms back into the bunks as everyone, almost everyone, is packing up. Mariner isn't leaving, though. She knows she's going to be knocked back down soon enough. She suggests that Ransom is dumb and playing mind games. And she's going to rage out and be in charge of her own fate. Time for the rest to check into rooms, but Rutherford isn't going. Sadness. His solution is just to get a promotion today. After all, how hard could it be? Later, Mariner is going to Ensign Gary's first mission. But she won't be in uniform. She's going to be cash. She says they're dealing with a menagerie, an alien zoo. A few humans were scooped up, so it's time to bust them out. No weapons allowed. And the menagerie catching humans happens all the time. She goes down with Gary and Ransom, calling him Jack because socially they're equals. Boimler enters his new room, flooded by the cell light. He'll get used to it. On the Ensign Gary mission, Mariner speeds the shuttle in, skidding into the shuttle bay, earning from Ransom a compliment for great piloting. Gary needs to replicate some new pants. In the menagerie, Narge is happy to see them. He does have a hard time telling non-botanical creatures apart. Mariner feels like Ransom is setting her up for failure, and she's going to mess up the dynamic now. She asks Narge how he got into the prison business. But no, this is not a prison. It's got unique rarities like Moopsie. Moopsie! Narge is worried. He does abide by Federation law, and Moopsie is awfully cute. On the Cerritos, Rutherford is working on something impressive. His plan is to reduce warp manifold vibration by 0.05, but Ensign Livick has just done it by 0.6. Way to go, new guy, Livick. In Boimler's quarters, he's barely managing with the Spock red eye cover thing. Billups puts that 0.6 in action, and the light gets to Boimler even more. In the menage, yes, losing the humans will be a loss, but the real draw is the Pythian swamp goblins over there. And Moopsie is free. It gets into the swamp goblin enclosure and drinks their bones moopsie on the cerritos the tucker tube lights have been upgraded by rutherford but livick has added a third tube and calls it the billups tubes livick boimler has gotten to have his room moved now between two holodecks boimler is just getting settled as he hears to anna starting her robin hood program they shall save maid marion and then she just starts liberally killing people Boimler moves his bed to the other wall, where he, he hears Freeman playing out being president of Starfleet and her inaugural scatting, Bebop Dua. In the menage, our heroes run from Moopsie. They find themselves in a room with a solid door, and Ransom blames Mariner for letting Moopsie out. She's been pushing Ransom's buttons, but she didn't let out Moopsie. Ransom explains his line of her not being his problem anymore. 
he was going to give her so much confidence that she will stop acting out and thus the problem will disappear. She realizes that indeed she has been acting out, but he will continue to support her regardless. And she didn't let Moopsie out. It wasn't Ensign Gary, nor Narge. Narge does fear Moopsie. In fact, Narge has bones, and Moopsie drops down, chugging Narge's bones. Mariner and company run out, and now Moopsie is in the station's main control room. Moopsie! Buttons are pushed, and the station starts to fly lower and lower. In the Cerritos Jeffries tubes, Boimler is trying to sleep, and he's found by Rutherford. Rutherford's there to do minor improvements, but Livick has already come through. In the Menage... The station is falling into the planet. Mariner will run to the control room, and the other two can push buttons to save the day. But Ransom has an idea. Punch him in the face! Mariner does, and she does so hard, knocking out teeth. On the Cerritos, Rutherford is working hard for a replicator upgrade, but Billups now is going to promote Livick. Rutherford is crestfallen, and Tendy gives a pep talk. Rutherford wishes he hadn't turned down all those other promotions in the prior three seasons. He turned them down just so he could hang with his friends. But can't he just take one now? Tendy asks for it, and Rutherford is given the junior grade pip. Hooray! On the station, Moopsie is following the trail of teeth and eats the trail back into the Moopsie habitat. The station orbit is stabilized, but who let out Moopsie? And isn't something off about the human enclosure? Indeed, it was the humans who hacked their way into the Moopsie area. Humans really are the most dangerous game. Mariner gives a log. Mariner's log, and she notes the humans were to blame, so they're going to stay there until the next go round. In sick bay, Ransom has new veneers, and he's happy Mariner just follow orders. He won't allow her self sabotage, and she's going to be a great officer just like him. Boimler and Rutherford will be bunking together. It's a bright room, and with a few clicks of the viewport, all is well. Rutherford fiddles with a device, and now everything feels like home. Red alert. All hands stand to battle stations. Pete, we have a tactical analysis of this week's double barrel of threats. Let's start with the greatest threat of all to some of the best in Starfleet promotions. Who had ambition as a threat on their uh, lower decks bingo card? It, it cuts against the conceit of the show. Uh, and to have them here, so many of them get promoted in this first episode and have the, the remaining lower decker, uh, you know, uh, and, and his, uh, erstwhile ambition in the second episode be a, a real story point. Yeah. I, while sitting down to watch both as a, as a single serving, um, in, you know, as this first episode wrapped up, I had put a tweet out there, you know, hashtag justice for Rutherford and all of that. Not hugely surprised that A, it gets resolved in the second episode and B, kind of, we've, we've spoken before how Lower Decks exists in the portion of the Star Trek universe where sometimes you can do hand waving and it, and it works. I think it's because it's comedy plus animation. So this notion that, <laughs> that the whole second episode rather rutherford's portion of the the whole second episode um is him searching for a promotion searching for for a promotion and then at the end of the day he just needs to ask for one of his old promotions a that's humorous and b the whole notion of promotion is a threat for the four of them it really does serve to highlight them as characters you know boimler holding back to preserve 
his friendship. Mariner learning to accept uh, the praise that comes with a promotion. Uh, obviously, the Rutherford arc here where it's, you know, oh, he's turned down <laughs> promotions a bunch of times. Um, maybe Tendi, the one kind of hanging out the most without a promotion arc. However, I think she's just living there in the wide-eyed world of science and and happy to be following the merit-based system of Starfleet. Uh, she has captain ambitions as of last season. So probably tracks the best that she would be promoted. I mean, the Tolin thing, a little soon, but whatever. I mean, we don't watch this show because it makes sense. We watch it because it's another Valentine to Star Trek uh, and plays around with so many of the things we've seen before. Um, these two episodes in particular, I mean, all of the Voy stuff, Matt, all these Voy obstacles that they come up against, the Borgified Tactacian microviruses. I just love that uh, uh, Mariner refers to them as chunky cold sores. <laughs> yeah, it's... I mean, look, it's, it's to use your words, it's a love letter to Voyager um, to have the mixture of these different influences and so forth. It's a ton of fun. Uh, even down to the, fine, you have the the robotic salamander, but it's not meant to have sentience or anything like that. It's just there as part of one of the displays. Initially, I was like, oh, how is it doing things? And no, it has its own little board cube on the back. So you get your Voyager greatest hits and you get your Voyager, I don't know, most, uh, know, that Salamander thing, that Salamander story is not a greatest hit, but it certainly is memorable and uh, worthy of inclusion here. That they made an animatronic uh, Janeway and or Paris uh, highly evolved threshold uh, Salamander thing and that it winds up getting Borgified is great uh chaotica matt i mean come on you're gonna dip in to voyager you go with the black and white hologram villain yeah along with the film grain uh mm -hmm. aspect to it which i wonder because I, I must confess Pete, it's been a little while since i've seen some of those voyager episodes i know it's all i know those holodeck adventures hollow novel adventures are in black and white did they also have the film stuff there or no uh, yeah, I mean, they would kind of age it a little bit. Okay, I I think it's it's even more important that it is here since you also have the uh, the clown character from that that really wonderful, really unusual Voyager episode. Maybe the closest Star Trek has come to just an outright Twilight Zone meets Star Trek. Um, but I think since the clown is chromatically black and white versus Chaotica lives in the world of black and white. Um, you need that film grain for Chaotica just to kind of serve as a reminder there. Um, and, you know, both are both are great villains to bring back for what this story needs. And then you, you throw in, oh, they've added hollow emitters all over the ship because it's not, you know, it's it's not conservation as much as it is kind of kind of accenting what was there without taking away and so forth. And it just again, it's a little bit of a hand wave. I guess it makes sense. And it gives us these characters. If the conceit of this Voyager-themed episode, Ransom saying that everything on Voyager was freaky, which 
I think we need to test that hypothesis in a little bit, but to, to mine, you know, the second season episode, the thaw and bring back here, the, uh, the Michael McKeon, uh, clown, um, and and have him brandish a knife and then get multiplied uh, makes as much sense as anything else. <laughs> we also have as a threat the the Tuvix hybrid army that gets added to and added to. I mean, in the world of animation, what a great concept. Conversely, would it look great in live action? It would. Can you imagine that production pipeline? <laughs> we need the sketches. We need the latex. We need the makeup. The, 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 the. Do we do a third actor a la, you know, Tuvix, T-U-V-I-X, um, and, and all of that? Like, all those problems go away in an animation. You just go, you, do a sketch of Minglamo and, and uh, uh, Captain Freeman put together. Yep, that looks good. Send it to color. Send it to font. You know, all of those things. Um, and I'm sure you noticed, Pete, that they sidestepped... Um, in, in a delightful way, in an acceptable way, they sidestepped the ethical discussion here because when they all get put together, they are non-sentient. Therefore, while everybody goes, I can't believe Janeway killed Tuva, uh, Tuvix, it's not happening here. Yeah, the non-sentient meatball towards the end. But, you know, seeing shacks and barns and, you know, the the whale character and Steve Stevens all all combined there um yeah that was a lot of fun obviously as part of the 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 season threat in a season that they are saying is a more serialized season than the prior three we have this kind of organic pearl ship that definitively killed off uh everybody on the klingon ship i mean down to you know like there's the Klingon logo. There's the debris. There's the spear that the guy was holding. He's dead. Ditto for the Romulans. There's the chair. There's the logo and so forth. So for as much as we had fun in these two episodes, there's a major threat out there. I don't know that they are definitively dead. And the, and we will discuss that in our next segment. Uh, they really wanted you to have the symbol of the ship that got blown up or whatever else it might have been and no identifier to this vessel, you know, end of the first episode, beginning of the second connective tissue between the two, uh, have to imagine by next episode, our crew starts to become aware of what's going on here. And I know that maybe it was one of the supervising directors for the show, somebody who was allowed to do an interview and all that. Um, commented you know re repeated what has been discussed before which is there are monthly star trek showrunner you know zooms or things of that sort so this is all coordinated with the other shows even though the other shows are taking place at different points in the timeline and it was definitively stated there this is not the gorn why is it not the gorn because they know that we we viewers are already watching a gorn storyline so that's one. That's one name off the uh, the map there. Speaking when of the get blown up next week, we'll we'll really have that drilled into us. There you go. Maybe it could be a, uh, a you know a, a TOS era Gorn on the bridge next to a <laughs> a, a uh, you know. Do you think they'll do uh, you know nine different 
species before it gets to our heroes uh, in the finale, or you know they're they're just setting up with a couple. I think they're setting up with a couple, but to prognosticate on the pace here, if you are going to do one per episode, it tells me that it's it that we're going to get you know an escalation sooner than not. Um, maybe not next week, you know, episode four or five, somewhere in there. Uh, another threat, at least to his retinas, are Boimler's new room <laughs> assignments, uh, which is a delightful little kind of squiggle of a plot. Not just his retinas. How about his uh, auditory faculties having to listen to uh, Dr. Ta'ana uh, abuse holodeck technology and on the one side and then uh, Captain Freeman uh, becoming president of the Federation and scatting at her inauguration. <laughs> and as ridiculous, I mean, obviously it's meant to be ridiculous. It's meant to be funny. The, the, the icing on the cake is the line, you know, who would put a room in between two holodecks? Um, I guess on the one hand, that's a fair question on the flip side. I don't know. There's probably, probably if we had a, a deck by deck tour of a, you know, uh, of a Navy battleship or Navy aircraft carrier, there'd be moments like, for example, I remember seeing something or other that the w w one of the uh, worst crew rooms on an aircraft carrier is underneath the the not just the deck, but like where the where the portion of the deck where the planes land, like you're six feet under that. So like all the time you just hear giant planes landing on top of you. And it's like, why would you put a room there? Uh, probably because there was space for a room as opposed to electronics pipes storage you know things of that sort so it's like in that lower decks way the room tracks yeah uh makes a lot of sense to do it there uh oopsie matt uh drinking bones uh and you know just doing what it does really being labeled a monster when it's not i mean fantastic character yeah again these two episodes lean into not just animation in general but lean into your animation talent to be doing these character designs um this this show is far from relying on the you know original animated series thing of how many stock shots can we use over and over clearly they're you know clearly even if they go through the script and go okay we need you know we have 30 times where we need our, our our core characters walking to or from camera. We've already animated that. We need shocked ransom and angry mariner. We already have that in the computer too. If that's freed up time to do moopsie character design and animation or on the menage to do all these backgrounds and, and creature designs and so forth, they're just diving on into it. And, you know, moopsie is a character for the ages thought that Moopsie's voice was the same as uh, Star Trek prodigy rock talk, Riley Alice Rocky. Or Pete, the show that Paramount Plus would like to call. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> hey, they're the ones that disappeared, <laughs> not me. Um, another threat this week and one where is it, was it a one was it a one week joke? Is it going to be an ongoing thing? Uh, the introduction of Ensign Livick. 
Yes, to have Rutherford as maybe the whole, most wholesome character on the show. Tendi's got a little bit of an edge to her. Uh, this Rutherford, not the the past Rutherford, right before his accident and his augmentation. Um, to have a foil, to have uh, you know a, a uh, bright but uh, upwardly mobile engineering uh counterpart in livick who then you know responds when rutherford comes through rutherford and tendy and part of what's so great about the the breadth of this show is look for all we know the plan as they made that that episode the plan was it's just a one-shot kind of you know one-dimensional joke character here but I think back to characters like Jen, which were, you know, background Andorian plus, uh, you know, an ad lib line, you know, out of the way, Jen or shut up, Jen or whatever. And that now has become, uh, you know, a more important supporting character. I think of Towel Guy, who you just look back and go, Towel Guy has been in 12 of 30 episodes. You know, and you go back and look and go, there's Towel Guy, there's Towel Guy. He even has a Klingon counterpart at the beginning of... Uh, at the beginning of the Klingon sequence in uh, in the first episode, it would be fun if they use Livic somehow in the future. Whether it's you know sacrifice uh, a la Shax in the first season, whether it's Peanut Hamper with a dramatic turn, uh, whether it's just Livic is a good guy by the end of it. Um, you know, by the end of the season, forty episodes, uh, season fifty, uh, season five ordered. So you have fifty episodes. Surely there's some room for Livic in there. But Pete, the last villainous threats on the list here. Let's take a look in the mirror. Who are they? Menagerie humans. And they were kind of letting you know right from the jump there with the umbrella panel upside down. But the camera doesn't linger on it long. And then when you come back to it, all right, they're next to Moopsie. These idiots, us, let it out. I really, I, I appreciate that for as much as this show can be somewhat brainless at times, you know, this is not kind of, I think of that Next Generation episode where it's like, there's some sort of like shadow monster attached to Geordi and they're doing detective work in the holodeck, you know, or how are we going to get back from this far off place? We're going to use science words and so forth. This show does not challenge you necessarily on that level, but you go back and look and you go, there's the blonde human female leaning against a picture, the the, the umbrella picture, th that doesn't match, as opposed to like, oh my goodness, thank goodness you're here, let us out. It's right there in front of us, and if you let this show lull you into a false sense of security, then you're paying the price. Let's use our long-range sensors to scan for some theories. Pete, where would you like to begin? Let's talk, Matt, about the use of Star Trek IV's probe now in the credit sequence. It's it's fun. The pièce de résistance is adding the um, was it the probe sound or the whale call sound? I can't remember which. It's it both. You can hear the chung 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 as the little ball there comes out and then the whale noises uh if i'm uh directing if i'm writing it you, you got to have everything powered down though 
Um, I I like that they keep adding and adding and adding each season uh, to to these credit sequences. Obviously, in the case of the Borg battle, it's approaching ridiculous levels here. Um, but even things like just adding more color to the backgrounds of whether it's when the the ship goes by with the parasite or things of that sort, the kind of the final, you know, the final beauty pass of the ship, you know, created by Mike McMahon, that very end. I think there's just now like colorful, there's a colorful nebula over there and things of that sort. Um, Surely Pete, you're not proposing though, that the whale probe plays a role in this season. No, 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 no. If they wanted to reach for that, I think we'd, you know, recognize what we're seeing is is not that. We'll we'll get to what I think we're seeing, but let's talk about what Ransom says about Voyager. Freakier than other ships, than other franchises? I mean, I think there's possibly something to it. I just, you know, as I'm sure everybody knows, Voyager conceived to be the, you know, this Deep Space Nine thing, people don't dig as much. So we need to get back to Star Trek's roots and get back to Wagon Train in the Stars and, and all of that and and take away some of the tools like, you know, help from the Federation and things of that sort. I mean, Pete, do the other shows have do the other shows have as freaky versions of things like like I think of that Voyager two parter where they're what are they they're trapped in a hollow program because people baddies have taken over the ship and they're fighting in the the old europe set at universal studios and just like wacky stuff like that heck the whole the, the salamander thing um i i would stand by that generally speaking that it's 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 the freaky place i don't know man i think deep space nine saw its share of freaky behavior i i don't know uh perhaps even though uh lower uh season count episode count enterprise obviously well before this saw some freaky stuff i i think it's a little bit of a of a stretch to just say uh, this ship saw the strangest things i mean go with well they went where nobody had ever gone they were coming from uh the delta quadrant so it's a little stranger over there it it felt a little half-baked maybe this isn't exactly a theory but i'll just observe yeah maybe it's a theory to look how the season will unfold although it's not a heavy theory just this notion of ransom through kindness through cool-headed analysis of the situation ransom is going to be the one to uh, break Mariner of her self-destructive ways and who's going to continue to believe in her and continue to praise her and to to continue to see the best of Star Trek ideals in her. A, I just find that really touching. I think he's the only one that can do it in the command crew. Obviously, you know, Captain Mom is, is in a mom position um, and the other characters don't have direct oversight over her. Um, I think add to it, We've done three seasons plus flashbacks of Mariner being self-destructive and, and and slowing her career down and so forth. Do I want the next three seasons to be that? No, let's evolve a little bit. Um, 
But I just think I think the ad it's not you know it, it it's a very lower text thing. It's not just well we're going to promote people because the conceit of the show is these people eventually start to move up. It's that there's heart and soul to it. There's emotion to it. There's character based sympathy, empathy, and trust in it. And it's just it's lovely to have Mariner bring up to Boimler the Pike thing they aren't supposed to talk about in the first episode of lower decks we see after that pike thing will we hear about it will others hear about it well you know it was only on rewatch that i noticed multiple uh instances of the uh the number one poster as boimler's moving from room to room Mm -hmm. and in in none of them is it clear to the uninitiated, in none of them is it clear what it is. I think it's most prominent when he's sleeping in the, the Jeffrey's tubes and the, the entire upper half is covered by something. So here's what I want to propose, Pete. Let's dip into Star Wars for a second. You think of how secretive the filming of the Mark Hamill stuff was, even down to having your main crew and main production go to the park and film Parkland stuff while couple you know 30 people hang back to do a secret thing um obviously these episodes have come out basically concurrently the the lower decks crossover you know a month ago and now these two episodes but i wondered if maybe it was like you know these these 10 people or whatever they're in charge of another project and they're going to be in separate meetings from the the team meetings where everybody you know the all hands meetings um, and maybe where we're seeing, you know, seeing the Pike reference here. Oh, it's just a funny throwaway thing. Nobody's necessarily going to flag it as something. Um, same thing with the poster here. Oh, put this bottom half of this animation a- asset in the background. Okay, boss. I won't question why I can't see the top half. Um, it'll be interesting to know if that sort of thing went on because it really, I mean, we knew the crossover was coming, but we didn't know how it was going to work. And it worked not knowing. Does Tillips have physical memories of uh, Dr. Ta'ana and Shax? I think absolutely. And you add to the fact that uh, Billups being, shall we say, uninitiated in matters of the flesh, when that, when, when the Billups portion of Tillips, who is uh, fresh as the, as the new snow in that department, <laughs> then, oh, and, and who haps, I would, I would propose that Billups is perhaps not, uh, or perhaps more inclined towards females than males, etc. When Tillips now had to activate the energetic, enthusiastic gymnastics that Shax uh, and Taana have engaged in, that, that you see all that in the moment where you know his pupils grow small, and all of a sudden, the Billups portion that has not known such things now is. <laughs> reflecting on memories where a lot has been known. This has to be the first instance where we've seen holodeck safety protocols set to random. Um, would it work in season one of Picard? I don't know if I want to live and I have no friends and I'm going to die. No, it wouldn't. Does it work in lower decks in this kind of madcap situation? It does. I know that there are people out there that dislike any time there's a holodeck story where the whole conceit is the holodeck doesn't work right. And, you know, for other things, there's like 
a plug or a physical switch that can't ever be overridden. Either the, either it's up and connected or down and not connected. No, not on Star Trek. On Star Trek, you know, it's cheese, it's feathers, it's uh, Moriarty, it's whatever to kind of give you the story conceit that you want. There's people that don't like that, um, but it's part and parcel with a good old-fashioned broken holodeck story, and we get it. We get it here to comedic effect. Nowhere else would we ever be able to acknowledge Janeway's solution of the Tuvix uh, situation as over the top, as awful. And I love that they can just go to it here. You murdered this sentient combination of these two characters. Yes, you got them back and separate, but you took the new thing and you killed it. Well, and you know, look, Lower Decks is not here. I don't think any of these modern shows, they're not here to rewrite previous Star Trek. Um, and, and, and I mean, heck, perhaps one can infer that part of the reason that the Kelvin Universe films didn't take off to the highest degree of, of you know, a movie every two years and spinoff shows and all that, that maybe part of it was because it was rewriting. Yes, it was keeping the original timeline, all that, but it, it was rewriting on a certain level. But look, the Tuvix Voyager story has been has had its controversy from day one. I think you look back now at an episode that asks, "Is there a place in between binary dualities?" And you think of how more uh, more welcoming we've been to the Star Trek message on looking beyond dualities, whether it's gender, orientation, things of that sort. And that episode, the Voyager episode, only gets worse when you say the conclusion is you got to choose. You, all the Tuvok stuff needs to be on the Tuvok end and all the Neelix stuff needs to be on the Neelix end. There can't be an in-between. It, it's no longer a bright spot. I get what they were going for. You know, they were going for the submarine captain who says, close the lower hatch and that means three men will drown, but the rest will live. Okay, they were going for that. We have evolved past it. So in this episode, to just acknowledge, hey, Janeway made the call. She had to make the call, uh, and, and that was that. But we have evolved past it. It's it's done in the right way. It's done with comedic effect. Um, but I think also there's probably people who feel feel a bit seen by Star Trek in this episode and feel, you know, it's not the same people who made the, that Voyager episode, but that that things are things are a little bit better in the land of Star Trek. Lieutenant Junior Grades or Lieutenant's Junior Grade. Uh, it is the show misuses it. It is <laughs> Lieutenant's Junior Grade. They are plural in their lieutenancy. They are not plural in their Junior Grade status. It's the same with if you have one Attorney General and then another Attorney General. They're not pluralizing their generals. They are attorneys general. Um, they double down on it. They have two different characters say it. Boimler says LT, uh, Lieutenant Junior Grades, JGs later. Uh, I, I will assume that that is meta commentary for the fact that these are not the, you know, the, the best. The, they're not the flagship officers of the fleet or Pete, the one person that wrote the episode uh and, and what the promotions all came in the first one that was mike mcmahon maybe they didn't know um but i'll, I'll assume it's actually meta commentary for the fact that 
you know, it's it's those slackers on the Cali class and not, you know, not Picard there with his cup of tea saying, Lieutenant's junior grade, come forward. Is a spear a coward's weapon? Um, <laughs> the Spartans would say no. So by our by, by our measure, no. I think on the Klingon end, I completely understand how Klingons would view it as a uh, as a uh, a coward's weapon. Is Ma now captain of this Klingon ship that is destroyed? Last seen from the uh, Three Ships episode, promised more of him. Is he dead? <sighs> the fact that we don't see any bodies is interesting and noteworthy and we saw that or the lack you know that is to say we saw the lack of bodies twice um would it have been easy enough to throw some bodies in there i mean sure we see mangled uh romulan reman we see mangled reman parts in the second episode it's, it, there's not some sort of star trek animated rule against showing you know limbs of dead people and so forth if if you're going to propose that the larger story is is involving collecting these people, imprisoning these people, and so forth. I can definitely get down with that. I can see how that's a possibility. I don't think we're there yet. But the, again, the lack of bodies, it's tough to argue in, in two episodes that are so well designed why they wouldn't have bodies if they wanted everybody dead. Could they be hiding this in plain sight? This is another classic menage perhaps but then who's behind it i mean if you tell me the big season-long threat is the brother of our menagerie tree guy um look i wouldn't put it past lower decks yeah i think about how when shacks died and there's the shacks memorial in the first season it's in between action and the next joke but for those 10 seconds you kind of go oh man i kind of I liked this guy after 10 half hours. I can't believe they killed him off. And, you know, 35 minutes of episode later, episode 202, he's back. And you get an explanation that episode or the next episode, which is, I don't know, it's like a comeback to life thing, like Star Trek does all the time. You go, okay, yuck, yuck, you got me. So it could be, but I feel like they're set. I feel like this is, I feel like this is big boy, big girl Star Trek that they're setting up, not, you know, and it was another plant guy with a skeleton all along. I kind of like the conceit they've established in these first two episodes. And it's the first time we've gotten two at once to be able to joke around with the Klingons and then about the Romulans before this, you know, not understood threat comes for them. The Romulans here, just the, the complete and total, you know, plans and schemes and conspiracies that they're all trying to kill each other. Um, not that the Klingons aren't, they joke about that too, but it's, it's more direct. Uh, yeah. I like the way we can mess around with these. Um, love to see, you know, what, what goes on on a Borg ship before this, uh, this threat takes him out. Uh, maybe the brain and the whole joke could be, um and that's one of the benefits of having modern star trek having modern star trek in the classic trek era you know ish uh in a post next generation but we'll say next generation era 
Um, I will differentiate that between the Picard era, just particularly when it comes to Romulan stuff. And, and you know, we get to go back. My point being, we have to go back in time with this Lower Decks episode to a, to a time uh, where the Romulan Star Empire is still intact. And you can be hitting those familiar tropes and hitting those jokes versus, let's say, in the Picard portion of the timeline where, you know, it's a different different set of things going on in their society and all that. Making fun of the Remans, particularly that their juice gets everywhere is another opportunity only afforded by this show. Yeah. Had me, I don't know. I, I, I feel some sympathy for the Reman people uh, oppressed by their Romulan overlords and all of that. But uh, if nothing else, it reminded us why the Romulans are baddies. So, what is this threat, Matt, that has come for the Klingons, the Romulans, so much so to destroy their ships and just leave a, a piece of them flying around with their symbols prominently featured so we know who may have just gotten completely wiped out? Um, is it Agamus? Is it Badgy? Certainly we know that's where the season will head at some point, whether it's a standalone episode, whatever it might be. Um, I Here's my initial reaction to your question. If you're going to put Agamus and Badgie on the map, uh, on the map, pardon me, on the poster, then don't tease out a mystery. Like, if that's where we end up, then I, I'll look back and be like, well, if you told us that was going to be a story point this season, and then there also was a mysterious story point in the first two episodes i will be less less excited if that's the end point versus a brand new surprise versus we get some badgie and uh agamus and maybe peanut hamper yucks there and all of that um but then maybe this threat kills them you know that sort of thing where you go oh my goodness what's what's greater than the great characters that have just been taken out and all of that so i'll be a bit disappointed if they do that um thinking back on prior posters where i feel like they've kept they've kept secrets in tow i'll I'll swing for the fences in the other direction what if it's a ship from the future the far off future what if we get what if this is a springboard it worked the one time they've already gone for it again what if it's a springboard to lower decks crosses over with discovery and you know we get lines like oh man we're on another ship in the future and and things like that I'd be down for that the same way I'm down Matt for uh, a workout outfit like Ransom and Shaxx have using what uh, Troy and Crusher had on the next generation. Yeah. I mean, we spoke earlier about with the Tuvix stuff reclaiming uh, a, a less than perfect Star Trek point there. Same thing here. I mean, you look back, look, everybody knows that was an opportunity to put those two actresses in tights, to have them bend in potentially interesting ways in front of mirrors. So wherever you put the camera, you got the front and the back times two. Um, I think even, I think maybe when we heard Gates McFadden speak, I don't know, but I think even like they've looked back and said like, yeah, probably somebody, probably one of somebody, a producer, a writer, a, 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 the director, the actors, somebody probably should have spoken up and said, is this what are we doing here exactly 
So to kind of reclaim it here, to take the same ridiculous outfits and to put the male form in them, now it looks all the more ridiculous. I think it's not, certainly for my eyes, I dare say for your eyes, it's not done for our titillation. Maybe there's other people that really, really ate it up. But I think I, th I think the purpose was to, to just go back and say, when they did this the first time, it was ridiculous. And it wasn't, it was supposed to be more saucy, but it was ridiculous. And we're going to just remind everybody it's ridiculous. The opportunity to move our lower deckers to their own rooms now and the moving boxes and all the, uh, you know, touchstones that are crammed in there, whether it's the Captain uh, Picard Day banner or the model of this or the the Voyager plates and all these different things. That was a real nice touch. It was. I know that there there are specific people whose job it is in an animation production like this, and specifically with Lower Decks, to do um, background design, to do prop design, to do those things. So it's not just, oh man, Mike McMahon put in the script, and in this box there's this, and in this box there's that. There's talented people who know Star Trek who are part of the discussion to say, I want to put this in there, I want to put that in there. The one that really caught my eye when um rutherford and boimler move in together at the end and rutherford is fiddling with his science project that's wesley's anti-grav thing from the naked now um that he was using to show that he's a boy genius in the first half so in the second half he can boy genius stuff with the isolinear chips and all of that so again just real deep cut stuff here and stuff that shows how authentically not just this show is Star Trek, but the people making it are authentic Star Trek authors. Speaking of cuts there, Matt, in the menagerie, the number of sight gags, whether it's the purple orb with the snakes over it or the, the flying snake uh, with bat wings. It was, uh, that was just a fantastic set i even think and i think it was only shown in one kind of wide overhead shot how there's just a giant circular tank kind of up above 20 feet above everybody where a big water lizard whatever goes on by um again i would love to know for sure and you know i'm just gonna assume mike mcmahon you're probably listening you know dms are open email fantasticgmail.com you can say hey guys don't say don't say it was me. We'll keep your secret. We've done it in the past with other writer producers. Um, I would just love to know what some of those discussions are, what some of the, you know, just, just what all that is to go into, you know, are, are you taking old, is it because you have old animation assets for walk, for run, for things like that, that you can easily tweak and that's no big deal. It then frees up people to do other things. Um, Cause that's, that that could be that can be another bonus with animation it's not you know here we go making another custom uniform for the latest guest actor it's no we have all these bodies ready to go we just drag the corners and the computer does it now we can create brand new things over there if you're gonna have rutherford and livick have this rivalry what better to have them uh fight over than the efficiency of tucker tubes and the uh the new billups tubes i love that this super old prop i think it's i think it first shows up in wrath of khan um 
ah, it might be the motion picture. I'd have to look it up. But just this really old prop that has been in so many Star Trek things. Also, Airplane 2, William Shatner. I think there's a whole thing. What does it do? It just flashes back and forth. Um, but yeah, that I mean, those tubes in live action, those tubes have been in, I'm going to guess, 30 to 40 episodes and movies of Star Trek. Um, and to get a little love here, it's, you know, it's it's hilarious and heartwarming. I love the return to the Ta'ana Shaq's holodeck misadventures and his almost uh, unwillingness to do it <laughs> to the point where are you, are you ready to get weird? Uh, would, would it matter if I said I wasn't? And, uh, you know, whether it's a old timey bank robbery or now uh, Robin Hood just completely abusing the hollow characters. Particularly since most of the time when we see holodeck stuff, the Starfleet people, you know, it's how can I navigate through the reality of it, right? I'm going to be the best Sherlock Holmes I can be. I'm going to be the best 1940s gumshoe I can be. Not you kind of go in there and I'm going to kill Robin Hood and then kill the Merry Man and just start to kill everybody <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> like, then why, why be Robin Hood in the first place? I, you know, it's there's a, there's a weird, sadistic, nonsensical nature to it that, um, again, probably works better in animation than live action. Giving uh, Ransom's teeth to Moopsie as, you know, uh, Reese's Pieces here to, uh, you know, E.T. that out. Uh, will Ransom's new choppers stay that way or will we return to uh, normal teeth next week? I don't know a whole lot about such things. I do remember forever ago, I had a coworker who went from, shall we say, not great teeth to all of a sudden had great teeth and had trouble speaking for the next couple of days. But then that kind of all settled itself. So I'm, I'm assuming that what we, I, I was thinking of that as we were watching this episode, as I was watching this episode, I assumed that we have the, the plot point here of the bone monster and the two are working together and sacrificing all that uh, to give up his bony teeth. Now he has new teeth. That's a funny scene. But I would assume that next week we're back to regular ransom and regular ransom uh, ability to speak. What doesn't seem to be returning anytime soon are these characters as ensigns. Uh, but that Rutherford had been the one who was constantly offered promotions. And you can apparently turn that down and cash it in anytime you want. <laughs> well, we saw Riker turn down more than one promotion along the way. Um I agree. It's somewhat nebulous. Can't he accept it now? And how does that prevent uh, Livick from getting his? Again, that's kind of where we go. It's Star Trek, but animated. It's a story that's slightly crazy. It's walks on a Troy in a mud bath. Not, you know, this is the nature of race or this is the nature of consciousness. Um, so I think it, at the end of the day, it certainly it certainly works. And I would agree with your statement. You know, Ensigns no more. We've done 30, 31 episodes with them as Ensigns. Now it's time to enter the next phase of their career. With that, let's open Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. To Twitter we go, where we ran the following poll with a one-two punch. Uh, what was your favorite part of episodes 401 and 402? Vote and reply. 
Uh, the I will go bottom all the way up. Mystery threat. I uh, got thirteen point six percent. Boim's getting lieutenant junior grade got thirteen point six percent. Moopsie got sixty three point six percent, and then nine uh, percent of people said other reply below. So we'll look at those replies now. Uh, JT Adkins, JTA is me on Twitter said. I liked 402's resolution, Will It Last, of the Ransom Mariner conflict. The bit with his new mouth was a great sight gag, while all the while nice relationship development was taking place. Well done. James is sagacious. Big Kiln on Twitter says, Talyn is stealing the show for me right now. My theory is that the mystery threat will tie into Section 31, because we're definitely getting that, right? Uh, and Pete, I will remind you and our listeners that uh, don't forget Billy Boimler, his death was faked, and he has been scooped up by Section 31. So, yes, that is out there as a plot point. I like it. Andre Yeager at Dr. Polo in 1983 says, Right back to where they started, still a great and funny Star Trek TV program, animated or not. Both episodes had me uh, in stitches. Uh, penultimately, Pete, Spider-Ham Lincoln uh, at Tess LC 139 has an acrostic poem. It uh, spells out lower decks. Here we go. Loving our wacky ensigns oops lieutenant junior grades return don't ever cancel this kick butt show uh there you go uh last but not least we hear from uh, diana bodenberg who says so happy lower decks is back the two vix episode was so funny loved all the voyager callbacks the second episode was great too will ransom's teeth ever look normal again moopsie <laughs> Uh, and to the email inbox we go, hearing from Josephine Avalos, who says, This was my first time watching Lower Decks. The crossover to Stranger Worlds got me interested. Liked how they mentioned the Pike thing. I laughed so hard at the opening credits. Was not expecting the ship to get hit by an asteroid and float away. Did I just see them pull the Pike maneuver? Then they get hit by a Borg beam. They're like, nope, we're out. And then they hit some sort of ice and lose power. And some alien is sucking their warp engines. I'm so used to seeing epic starship scenes uh, flying through nebulas. I went ahead and watched the new season episodes without seeing the rest. I was like, screw it. Lower Decks didn't disappoint. Absolutely loved the Voyager theme. So many memories and mentioning my favorite characters. I'm definitely watching the beginning episodes now. I think what makes this show hilarious is that only a Trekkie will really understand the jokes, especially the Tuvix drama. Like, for real, dude, they're uh, there's like huge discussions on Jane Wade's method of solving that dilemma. Glad we can just laugh about it. OMG Ensign Ken uh, Kim's clarinet was in that macrovirus. Oh, and these guys use so much profanity. It's great. Man, who'd have thought be writing two weekly essays on shows? I'll leave you with how many physical memories do you have from before? Semper Fi, that from Josephina. I have all the physical memories. <laughs> well, Pete, this entire voyage for Lower Tech Season 4 is made possible by those who support us on Patreon.com slash Fantastic Geek. And as always, we give them our thanks. Everybody who goes to Patreon.com slash Fantastic Geek can get access to all sorts of content. Takes just a dollar a month to get you behind that door can't contribute get yourself to apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a rating or a review and help more people find us and pete between now and the conclusion of lower deck season four let's keep the star trek conversation going how can people be in touch with you on a prominent social media website or two you can find me on twitter and threads at peter p-i-e-t-e-r-j-k-e-t-e-r-k-e-t-e-r-k-e-t-e-r-k-e-t-e-r-k-e-t-e-r-k-e-t-e-r-k-e-t-e-r-k-e-t-e-r-k-e-t-
E-L-A-A-R, 12,670 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter is looking back lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on fantasticgeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, and threads where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with a PH, all one word, like it today. Next Saturday, Star Wars Saturday, as we continue to make our way through the Ahsoka series. Next Sunday, Star Trek Sunday, as we make our way through Star Trek Lower Decks. Exciting times indeed. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Oopsie. Never fails to take my breath away. I wish I could kiss her and squeeze her. Excuse me?